0: Welcome to Enemies, From War to Wisdom. Why do we need enemies? From intimate relationships to politics, tribalism, and community, we cannot seem to stop dehumanizing each other. Chronic conflicts in our families, societies, and nations seem inevitable. In this podcast, we analyze human hostilities from the most mundane to the most sophisticated. We apply psychology, psychoanalysis, art, spirituality, and relational theory in conversations about belonging and othering. Each program reaches for a fresh wisdom that shows us how to step back from creating enemies in our lives. I'm your host, Jill Abelok, a book artist, end-of-life doula and spiritual caregiver, and mindfulness meditation teacher. I'm here with my co-host, Polly Young-Eisendrath, Who is a psychologist, Jungian analyst, author, and speaker. We approach our ideas each from our own worlds, but always from the spirit and teachings of Buddhism of which we are lifelong practitioners. So today we're going to talk about the humiliation rage cycle in private and public situations. Humiliation is the experience of being exposed in our weaknesses and losing our social status in a couple or group. Being humiliated naturally evokes rage as a protective mechanism because an individual feels undermined and loses face in front of others. As we have pointed out many times on this podcast, human beings are naturally self-promoting and self-protective in groups and families. The humiliation rage cycle is an interactive cycle between two people or groups who use shaming and blaming or calling out faults as a means of handling conflicts and differences. In this episode, we'll talk about how destructive this cycle quickly becomes and how it should be avoided at every step of the way during conflicts in which the two parties actually want to change each other's perspective or make an impact. In the humiliation rage cycle, individuals get caught in the fog of war, a pervasive uncertainty about what they are saying, defending, and intending, and why they are doing so. Keeping emotional threat levels low is always the best way to begin a conflict and to avoid the humiliation rage cycle.
1: Hi, Jill. Hi, Holly. (laughs) This is, I think, a very timely topic as it has been over the last several years Mm -hmm. as we've seen it in the public domain so often that you know it's to me a really big mistake and it's made publicly in media and also in various kinds of public conversations to begin a conversation in which you apparently want in some way to communicate to the other person or the other group to begin it by the faults of the other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, in in couples and families, many times when we want to influence uh, the other person, we start out by saying, well, you didn't clean the garage. Or you told me last week you were going to do such and such or you never blah, 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 or you always blah, blah, blah. Beginning with somebody's faults, beginning a conversation that way, it's a risk that you're shaming them. Mm -hmm. Now, if it's a close friend and every bit of your, let's say, connection is full of rapport, (laughs) maybe you can begin, particularly if you have some humor with some faults like that, But if there's any sort of sense of emotional threat, like somebody's welfare is on the line or somebody's desire is on the line or whatever, if you begin that way, basically what you're doing is you're starting out by taking the worst step you can take, Mm -hmm. which is that you're going to try to expose Mm -hmm. somebody else's weaknesses and that move within a group, or, and we can consider a couple a group here because it's more than one person. Mm-hmm. When you make the move to expose somebody's weaknesses, that in, let's say, the old homo sapien way of life in the hunter-gatherer kind of group could have put their life at risk. Mm-hmm. So what you're doing is you're making them vulnerable. Mm-hmm and you're doing that in a way that seems to lower their social status. Mm-hmm. And so that is what evokes the rage in response. Mm-hmm. You know, as though if you if you threaten to let's say do something to a dog Sometimes, if that dog is very protective in an aggressive way, that dog will pounce or growl or bite even even though you haven't done anything mm-hmm. you've just you've just conveyed the threat
0: right and i think I think that that um, thinking about this humiliation is often used as a weapon it's a way of striking out and it's not necessarily um in response to something that happened as as you said you start out the conversation with you know for the last two weeks you haven't done whatever it was that you promised me you would do the the start of the cycle is it to me is often disappointment or anger and so humiliation is the weapon that's used as the expression of that disappointment or anger and because it's used as a weapon you are in fact wounding the other person and people respond to being wounded with anger or rage so maybe i'm getting ahead of our conversation but i think that awareness of what is motivating the person to say something that can be wounding or or humiliating you know as you said with Friends, when it said with humor and good report, or out of genuine concern, and not because it's been a problem for me, but because I care about you and something you're doing in your life. You know, you mentioned that you really wanted to get all your reading done for this course you're taking by Thursday, and I've noticed that you haven't done any reading yet, and it's Tuesday evening. I'm concerned about you. So that's not a, a humiliating statement. It might be uncomfortable for the person who's listening. I'm not disappointed or angry necessarily at least in this situation if I if I'm not disappointed or angry and I'm not coming out of that place then what I'm saying is set out of genuine concern but if I'm coming from a place of and I'm paying for this course that you're taking and you're obviously not taking it seriously then that's different Then it is then that kind of weaponizes the statement a little bit.
1: Well, you know, often what people do is that they confuse all of these different states of mind. Like the the experience of being angry is feeling unfairly treated. Right. And instead of responding to the way I feel unfairly treated, the person assumes that then I need to fault you if I feel unfairly treated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then even more than that, if I come from a position that I've been victimized by you in some way, or that even you might be part of a group that I feel victimized by, then I may feel that I'm justified in in humiliating you because I have a kind of moral superiority mm-hmm. that gets associated mm-hmm. with my status of being the victim. And I think what often, gets people into the cycle of rage and humiliation is that sense of being the victim and then what is offered from that perspective and it it could be that it does start with anger in a couple you know you you feel unfairly treated by your partner who says something to you like don't interrupt me when i'm speaking and you and you you believe that you weren't really interrupting you were just trying to get your point across after you believe the other person was speaking for 5 minutes then you wanted to make a point so that you you may come into that moment feeling unfairly treated but then you might quickly identify with being the victim mm-hmm of that unfairness
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then feel justified in putting the other person down and uh, I think that in ordinary conversations and to some extent in the kind of calling out culture that we have now where people call out each other's faults in a public domain you know even for a misuse of a pronoun or a misuse of some sort of lingo that is supposed to be used in is su- certain way by the person who's hearing it, um, that what we sometimes have are these rhetorical statements that I I wanted to mention a few because these are the kinds of you statements mm-hmm. that I hear often in couples therapy. And they they really do have to be avoided if you want to actually have a communication Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and uh, you know like a a very basic one is like i don't know why you are being so reactive i was just asking for a cup of coffee here you know it's like i don't know why you are so reactive and then they may also include this kind of because even that's a rhetorical statement Mm -hmm. here are some typical use statements that evoke rage during a conflict and they're usually started out with don't you even care? Mm-hmm. Like, don't you even care about our children? Which means, of course, it implies you're a bad parent. Don't you even care about our children? Right. Why didn't you show up at time to pick them up at school? Or, you know, don't you even care about climate change? With somebody who might bring up a position that differs from mm-hmm. the mainstream position, mm-hmm. which implies you're a climate denier. Right. You know, the don't you even care? About the outcomes of these studies, which implies that you're stupid or uninformed. Don't you even care about science, which implies you're stupid or uninformed? Right. Don't you even care about racism, which implies you're racist? Don't you even care about feminism, which implies you're sexist? Don't you even care whether I'm happy, which implies you're a narcissist? Don't you even care about other people? Which implies you're a narcissist. Don't you even care about knowing about me? Which implies you're a narcissist. Many people, <laughs> many people get into the implication you're a narcissist mm-hmm. in today's world. It's mm-hmm. as though narcissism is sort of one of our favorite categories for othering. And when when you say to a person who has said the, uh, don't you even care about. Or, you know, I don't see why you're so if you ask them about what are they doing, they usually say, I'm just giving my opinion. Mm-hmm. So they don't in any way acknowledge the implied meaning to the other person,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which is humiliating. Right. And it implies that their social status is lower mm-hmm. than the one who's doing the speaking. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as that kind of dynamic gets set up, it's very difficult for anybody not to feel enraged. Mm -hmm. And the the rage might be cold. They might just want to walk away and never see you again. (laughs) Or it might be hot rage Mm -hmm. where they attack either Mm -hmm. you or they attack themselves, Mm -hmm. sometimes physically hitting their head or attack an object. Because they're so agitated mm-hmm. by that exposure right. which seems to be lowering their social status right.
0: or even perceived worth or value,
1: yes, exactly yeah. we, yes and so I mean when I say social status, that's really what I mean yeah, is yeah. that you know in a group, everybody will protect mm-hmm. their own value. Mm-hmm. And they will promote their value, too. I mean, our self-conscious emotions mm-hmm. actually motivate us to compare ourselves to others all the time mm-hmm. in the subtlest ways. And we're, we are going to promote our own mm-hmm. worth. Mm-hmm. And we are going to also defend that worth in status automatically. Mm-hmm. And so the rage reaction is a really very automatic reaction mm-hmm. to having your status lowered. Now... Of course, if it's a pervasive cultural category, it's enraging in a way that is pervasive. Right. And wars have started over that, and we have slavery as a category where that occurred over time. Yep. And uh, you know those kinds of humiliation situations are extremely destructive. Mm-hmm. But these other situations that are social interactive calling out are also destructive yeah. because as soon as you get into a calling out thing you enter into we, we talked about it in another podcast the fog of war mm-hmm. and war is where two sides are intending to harm each other and so pretty much the only thing you can experience is the self-protection mm-hmm. And as people go into real wars, and I think it's the same thing when they go into these situations publicly or privately where they're calling each other out, they quickly lose track of what's actually being said, Mm -hmm. what's actually going on. And in place of it, they simply have, from a Buddhist perspective, ignorance. Mm -hmm. And they're ignorant of the no self. They're ignorant of the fact that they're interdependent they're simply trying to protect this so-called self which is an interactive self and you can't protect it when it's exposed in this interactive rage humiliation thing it's extremely confusing Mm -hmm. because there's no way that you can do that and be able to actually feel yourself and be within yourself and be able to be curious about the other there's just no way all of that capacity drops away
0: yeah yeah and i and thinking about it from the perspective of couples and particularly i mean i'm thinking about couples who i know have been together for a really long time and humiliation is it seems often born of frustration or resentment and it goes back to I think to some extent what we were talking about in the previous podcast, which is control. Yeah. I perceive I perceive something in you that is a problem for me. And therefore I am going to attempt to control that. And the the means of control that I'm going to attempt to use is humiliation. Yes. To and, to it's, control you. and
1: it's usually actually more than even the control thing because generally when a person is using humiliation that person is identified with being the victim Mm -hmm. so there's this way that they that the victim person Mm -hmm. uh, wants to call out the victimizer Mm -hmm. the victim person wants to say it's you Mm -hmm. you're the one who has done this Mm -hmm. and i i I want, it's not enough, like, I want to get away from you. I want to condemn you. Mm. Uh, And again, couples can do this in ways that are, I think, hard for them to even see or Mm -hmm. notice. And some of those ways would be when people use these you statements that they sneak in under I feel. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel manipulated by you is not a feeling statement.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It would be, if, if I were to make a feeling statement, it would be like this. I feel frustrated, or, or I feel vulnerable, or I feel afraid. But manipulated is what's called an observer phenomenon. It's not, you, you will not say ever, oh, I'm manipulating you, unless you're a sociopath. In other <laughs> words, the person doing it is right. not experiencing that as manipulation or something like this i feel that you should meditate more or i feel that you should exercise more or i feel that your diet is getting out of hand none of those are feeling statements no they're all statements of accusation about the other person that that are hidden under the i feel thing Mm -hmm. and so again The person hearing those can quickly feel like the victim Mm -hmm. of an assault Mm -hmm. on their being Mm -hmm. and become enraged because they feel humiliated. Um, Even something like, I feel you're not interested in what I'm saying, Mm -hmm. is not a feeling statement. Right, right. Yeah.
0: Right, it's an accusation. It's an accusation. the assumption is, You're not interested in what I'm saying. And actually, I feel could just as easily be substituted for I think or I perceive, because it's actually not a feeling, it's a thought. That's right, right, right.
1: Or it's it's even trying to be an observation, Mm -hmm. which is more of supposedly an objective statement. So all of those kinds of, let's say, hidden calling out, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: hidden sort of, um, or, or, or somewhat hidden uh, portrayals of the other person's weaknesses mm-hmm. will evoke rage quickly. And then once that second person or party becomes enraged,
0: they may resort to humiliating the other one. So can you talk more about the perceived role of victim um, on on a broader social level? You know the calling out that's that's happening. I mean, not not necessarily specific people or politics, but the calling out that's happening in the in the social arena or the political arena where the per, perceived victimhood makes those who are doing the calling out feel righteous and empowered right, to right. do so, without thinking about the consequences of the response that's potentially evoked.
1: Yeah, well, without thinking perhaps at all about what's going to be created mm-hmm. if you humiliate somebody mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you think for a moment about, well, let's just take off the table first. Any kind of physical physical attack on somebody else, you are the victim of that. It's a clear situation. If someone has a gun in your face, if you're raped or if you are accosted, you're the victim if you're the person who's receiving that. So let's take those things off the table because they are in a different domain than Mm -hmm. most communication problems. And then in most of the situations culturally, the calling out is not taking place when somebody is actually literally being... uh, hurt physically Mm -hmm. but it's more of an identity issue Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. you are this kind of person or you look like this kind of person and so i'm going to call you out so or um, for
0: your views or your attitudes right right, right
1: what i assume you to be so um in that situation if you or if you're with your partner and you feel victimized what do you think is going on do you, i mean can you just say what you think is going on let's say
0: in relation to power i'll give you a hint <laughs> <laughs> thanks for the hint yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the person who is doing the calling out is holding is perceived to hold the power in the relationship i mean well i think that the person who's doing the calling out assumes
1: the power is elsewhere has projected power into the other person. That makes sense. Because it's like, if in, in order for me to be the victim, I have to be vulnerable.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I have to be the one who is unable to protect myself. Mm-hmm. I have to be the one who's been hurt and harmed. Mm-hmm. And so why can't I just stand up for myself and mm-hmm. speak for what I want? Why do I have to make you the enemy. Mm-hmm. And I I think it's because I don't feel like the power is on my side. I mean it's like you are the white patriarchal man mm-hmm. or you are the racist or you are the capitalist or you are the postmodernist. I mean these are all different right, things right. that get sort of thrown around. And the the idea here is that you've had the power, you've taken the power, and you've used it against me and mine, Mm -hmm. you know, in some way. Mm -hmm. So the issue of power enters into the rage humiliation cycle a lot. Mm -hmm. And typically, the side of the victim, which now, you know, often has this as you said, social power associated with it, almost like it's got power chips associated with it. Like, we always have to believe the victim. Mm -hmm. I mean, that idea I find really peculiar. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't get that. Mm -hmm. Because victim feelings move around. So, you know, it's not like there's just one victim. And there is also the issue... That if you truly have been victimized, at that moment that you were victimized, you all of your perceptual system wasn't working all that well, and so you may have perceptions of things that went on right. that other people watching this or seeing this or knowing about it would not say happened. So, the I believe that what undergirds or Underlies the rage humiliation cycle is the feeling that power has power is threatening to the victim mm-hmm. and that the power has to be deconstructed quickly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that then you know you do that by exposing the faults of the power right and that starts the
0: cycle right. of the rage right which interestingly the other thing that it does, Is it will create a victim in the other person. So now you have a victim, victim. Victim,
1: victim, exactly. And that's the cycle. And that's the rage, that's the
0: completion
1: of the projective identification of rage and humiliation. Both people will feel like they're the victims, or both parties will, and both parties will humiliate the other, and it will keep cycling around. And, you know, I think, as I call the red church and the blue church, And the war that's going on between the Red Church and the Blue Church has that quality of the one side calling the name of this and then the other side calling the name of that. So, you know, it's like the stupid, deplorable, uneducated, uninformed. And then it's the postmodern crude, violent, unthinking, Mm -hmm. you know. So they, they go back and forth. And of course, both of those can also get further sort of drawn out into conspiracy theories about whatever fake news means or deep state mm-hmm. and we find those terms being thrown back and forth between the red church and the blue church mm-hmm. because each side feels victimized by the other side right. and right. in order to get out of that mm-hmm. you have to stop the rage humiliation cycle mm-hmm. you can't con- you can't continue it and get to any point where there's any conversation that is possible. It's Mm -hmm. just not possible. Mm -hmm. There's too much self-promotion and Mm self-protection going on for the two people Mm -hmm. to be able to open their ears and their eyes and actually hear anything Mm -hmm. or see anything accurately. Mm -hmm. It's all in a fog. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the really destructive part of it because once you enter into that kind of fog of war, mm-hmm. then anything can mm-hmm. happen quickly. Right. And it seems as though nobody even knows it's happening. Right. Because nobody is actually paying very close attention to what they're saying or doing. And the impact that it's and having. And the impact that it's that it's having. Right. So, I mean, it's one reason why I feel like we need to really pay attention to calling out culture. Mm -hmm. And really understand that it is not effective.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. You know, it is just never effective because of the humiliation rage cycle and what it sets up. Right. And then there's no possibility. It's almost like you put your fingers in your ears and you close your eyes and you just can't hear or see. And you just shout, You just shout, yes. Yes. You just go into a fit.
0: And so, again... Harkening back to our previous podcast about projective identification, it seems to me that one of the ways to deconstruct or break down or break the cycle of humiliation rage is to slow things down. Mindfulness, essentially, to slow things down, to be curious, and to kind of open your eyes and, and be aware in the moment of um, how you're feeling and how and the impact that your statements are having.
1: There's that plus one more thing that I I know we've pointed out in other podcasts, which is called restraint, and uh, I know that in earlier podcasts Eleanor and I have read a number of passages from the writer Solzhenitsyn, and he says at one point. I can't remember if it's in the Gulag Archipelago or one of the other books that the one thing that all the religions teach that is perhaps the most valuable thing in his view that comes from religion is the importance of restraint. Mm -hmm. That you have to restrain your speech and you have to restrain it in a way that you simply vow to yourself Mm that you will not speak in you statements about the other person, or even sometimes in we statements, because Mm -hmm. the we involves the other person as well or the other party, that you will not speak in those statements, that you will constrain and restrain yourself Mm -hmm. to subjective statements, Mm -hmm. and also that you won't do this thing which is to try to locate all of the badness and particularly all the powerful badness in somebody else, Mm -hmm. that you will embrace the fact that you yourself are full of powerful badness Mm -hmm. and that you actually have to work with that powerful desire to destroy and become enraged in yourself first Mm -hmm. in order to actually begin a process of communicating with somebody If your goal is actually dialogue or being able to have an impact on the other person, and your goal is not simply destruction. Mm
0: -hmm. And I think it's important to note that powerful badness, as you describe, is an inherent part of being a homo sapien. And that is completely disacknowledged by... Our culture, the notion that somehow aspirationally we are supposed to be, right? The our, the idealized version of who we are as a species, um, the idealized version of goodness that contains no badness, is a huge obstacle to oh recognizing goodness. that powerful badness within right. each of us. Mm. And because of that, that also drives us to project it. Yes, yes.
1: Onto others. Yes, that's probably the worst thing that we can do is to disavow our own violence and aggression and find that disavowed violence and aggression in someone else Mm -hmm. and then try to control it in someone else. That is war. Yes. That's just straight-out war. And that is the most destructive way of behaving as a human being because we have other options you mm-hmm. know
2: mm-hmm. it's
1: uh, as i've said many times here animals do only the fight and flight mm-hmm. they do not and they cannot stop themselves in the midst of the fight flight and say oh i was wrong right or oh i made a mistake or oh I apologize. I'd like to change that. Animals can't do that. That's only a human thing. And the other side of that capacity to de-center is our ability to gossip, fictionalize, say things about others who are not present, And turn them into our enemies without their knowledge of it. Animals don't do that either. Yes. You know, they can't turn another animal into an enemy through gossip about that animal. So we can do, as Homo sapiens, we can do a variety of things that have to do with decentering from ourselves. Yes. Yes. And one of those is to stop ourselves mid action and change the way we are mm-hmm. and the other side of it is that we can create all kinds of fictions in our own minds mm-hmm. about things that have not happened to us mm-hmm. that did not take place mm-hmm. and then we can make them into a narrative that's very believable and we may believe that ourselves mm-hmm. you know it's not just that we're making something up against somebody mm-hmm. but you know again we've talked about In the case of projective identification, once you've projected into somebody qualities that you don't see in yourself, then you see them in the other person, and then you try to control them in the other person, and then you make up a whole story about the other person and what they're doing, or Mm -hmm. the other group and what they're doing, Mm -hmm. and then you may take that back in, and then you have reason to feel like you're a victim. Mm -hmm. Because actually, all of that seems absolutely objective to you. It doesn't seem subjective any longer. So, you know, one other way of looking at the way that, that you can proceed by avoiding humiliation and rage is that if you're going into a situation of conflict, whether it's with somebody you know, or with somebody who is a stranger, the first step really needs to be some sort of finding of, it doesn't have to be common ground, it can be a common goal, it can be simply your reasons for being in this conversation. Um, The first step really should never be any kind of, condemning or listing of the other person's faults if you enter in with that step Mm -hmm. into a conflict it can quickly become the rage humiliation cycle and then goes from there into the fog of war and then it's really just that sense of victim going back and forth yep between the two parties, and then it's repetitive. Then it never changes, it just cycles through all those things. So to avoid it, number one, do not begin with emotional threat. Don't begin the conversation with, you did this, you did that, or trying to so-called condemn Mm -hmm. the other person's Mm -hmm. faults. Mm -hmm. Instead, if you begin with, even in a situation where you have deep disagreement, if you begin with a statement, well, the two of us are here because we have to complete this project. And then an I statement, and I would like to complete the project. How about you?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You begin then with the recognition that we're in this conversation for reasons that have to do with our interdependence. Mm -hmm. And you begin to recognize... I can't solve this problem alone. Right. I have to solve this problem by understanding you as well as stating my perspective. Mm-hmm. And then you begin to step into what I call the self as an interactive process, where you recognize that the self is never inside of your body, it's not inside of you, it's not your identity. It's an interactive process. Right. It's an
0: activity. It's an
1: activity with others around yeah. you. And it's primarily interactive with other humans because that's where you can come to get reflections, feedback, mm-hmm. questions, and so on. Uh, you can get a little bit of that from other animals, but mostly you are going to need to hear from humans about it. So entering in low emotional threat opening up a conversation with curiosity and then fundamentally really recognizing that in order to enter in to an interactive self you have to restrain your destructive impulses mm-hmm. and you have the same destructive impulses as anybody else walking around right and then right. you can you have a chance then of beginning even where you feel a lot of conflict, mm-hmm. beginning a process where there's at least a small chance that you'll mm-hmm. be able to hear what the other person is saying and that you might be able to speak in a way that doesn't evoke humiliation and then the rage in response to it. So, you know, it's it's something more than mindfulness.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, that makes sense. One, from the mindfulness perspective, doing mindfulness coaching one of the things that i point out to people is if if in that awareness of the moment when they do feel that violation that something that's important to them has been violated anger which is just a signal anger anger is a really important signal it tells you something you hold as important has been violated so what you do with that uh, what you do with that signal other than strike out as The victim in an attempt to rebalance the power you can also from that awareness ask yourself what what is an outcome of this situation that would be mutually beneficial and approach things from that perspective which then you your status as a victim or creating another victim becomes less important it it you can instead approach it approach it more interactively, more from the perspective of interbeing, more mutually. More mutually. And even
1: then, I would say it wouldn't be necessary to go all that distance in order to get to an interactive perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that if you recognize, first of all, that... If you feel that something has been wounded or offended in yourself, Mm -hmm. first of all, if you recognize that you might have made a mistake, the very first thing is that you don't know that the way that you have taken things is exactly the way that things are. Right. All you know is that you've taken it that way. Right. And so if you can begin with the idea, and this is another thing about victim that I think is very important. Everybody is powerful. Mm -hmm. Power is not located. Everybody is vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Vulnerability is not located. Mm -hmm. Everybody is interactive. The self is not located. So as soon as you recognize that If you're projecting power into someone, then you're identifying with vulnerability. But if you can imagine that you and the other person are sharing vulnerability, Mm -hmm. that they also are experiencing vulnerability, nobody is inherently and permanently powerful. Even if you're in a role that's powerful, Mm -hmm. that role, it changes. And it changes moment to moment. So even recognizing that the victim thing it's a very slippery thing and it's usually based on projecting power mm-hmm. so if you start by recognizing that the other person is also vulnerable one of the one of the buddhist sort of approaches is to recognize that this person was also a baby also had mother also had a family and so on so you sort of quickly recognize this is a person who's full of vulnerabilities just like I am Mm -hmm. and neither one of us has ultimate power then you can proceed a little bit less with a sense that I'm the victim here so that experience of being victim is simply an experience and always we want to be able to have a sense of what's actually going on within our own snow globe, our own subjectivity. And if you have a pretty big story going about how you're being victimized, you actually need to take a moment and hear your own words in your mind. Because if you don't hear them, you are likely to only listen to them when the other person is speaking. Mm -hmm. So you want to know, like, what's the story you're telling yourself? And what is that story Bound up with it takes a little time, but you know if you get to know yourself, you get to know your stories, and that when you like for myself, when I feel like I'm really victimized, I know that the narrative that I'm telling myself is a is a narrative of isolation in childhood, mm-hmm. and it's a narrative that has clear markers and a lot of language that I can recognize in my own mind. And then I can just drop it mm-hmm. because I'm not a child anymore.
2: Right.
1: And that, that's just an old wound and sometimes it's touched. And the other person may not even know right. that it's been touched. So I, I like people to slow it down. Yep. And then also, I don't think that you need to build towards um, mutuality, compromise common ground in the end i think what you have to build towards is the creative use of your conflict mm-hmm. the creative use, the conflict might go to solutions common ground compromises or it might just remain a conflict mm-hmm. in which you understand the two sides more completely and sometimes that's really interesting And many times when I've come to see, like in working with a couple, when I see the two sides really, really clearly, I see how much they need each other Mm -hmm. because they come from these two different sides. So it's not as though you have to find that mutual thing. You may find it, or you may find uh, that... You've simply kind of come to understand a part of the world that you'd never understood before, and maybe you don't agree with that or endorse it, but if you're a human, you should find it interesting at least, you know. And so, I I think that um, very often people throw away these opportunities to use their conflicts creatively because they get into war. Too I quickly. I agree. I agree.
0: Yeah. And I and by mutuality, I didn't mean. I didn't mean something that was necessarily shared or reaching a a compromise or a common view or a common outcome. By mutuality, I meant recognizing that whatever is going on in you is likely going on in the other person too. Yeah, Yeah. You know, and so the power and the challenge. Reside in both places. Right, or the power and the vulnerability. 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 The vulnerability, yeah. Yeah, reside in both places. Right,
1: right. Because I think, again, we have this tendency to project even our power Mm -hmm. and then try to control it Mm -hmm. in the other person. Mm -hmm. And then if it doesn't go the way we want, then we will humiliate it. Mm -hmm. And then we enter into war. And so that, that whole cycle, if you break it, you you may not ever reach a point of agreeing with the other side, but you begin to see what the other side is and you begin to see yourself more yes. clearly too. Yes. And then that's there's a great gain in that. And the fact is we need two sides to solve any kind of problem. Right. And we just can't do it without the interactive process. It's then a one-sided situation where usually in the one-sided situation, these days at least, um, the the sort of speaking side is identified with being a victim, mm-hmm. and the projected side is identified with power, mm-hmm. which is really confusing, because often the victim seems more powerful in that moment. Right. And so in order to deal with conflict in a way that you can, you can come through the conflict with two sides intact, being able to use two sides you have to avoid that cycle of humiliation rage absolutely very
0: well said this is great thank you thank you (laughs) thanks so much for listening to continue the conversation you can follow us on facebook instagram and twitter our patreon page supports real dialogue for opposing sides live events please visit it at www.patreon.com forward slash real dialogue, all one word. You can find past episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and CastBox. Enemies from War to Wisdom is recorded and produced by Chris Coltrane.